Well, I'm excited about today. We're starting a new series, and my first question for you is just simply this. When is the last time you went on a job interview? Do you remember that? When's the last time you went on a job interview? Last year. Okay. How many of you would say I went on a job interview within the last... Anybody gone on a job interview this year in the last week? No. Okay. No, no job changes this week. How many say I did an interview last year? That's quite a few hands. In the last two years... Uh, last five years? How many of you would say it's probably been 10 plus years since you've been on an interview? That would be me. Yep. Yep. There you go. Um, how do you feel about job interviews? Let me see. Uh, how many of you would say I'm the anxious kind? I would rather, you know, somebody stick bamboo under my fingernails rather than go on a job interview. Yep. How many, how many of you are like, I love job interviews. They're amazing. Give me, nobody loves job interviews. Uh, you like them. <laughs> I thought, I was thinking about this. My last job interview actually was like 2011. I know that you're like, Brent, you've been here longer. Yeah. When Carrie was trying to get a teaching job, I was scouring the websites to kind of help her find where the jobs were. And I stumbled across a part-time technology position at Des Moines Christian School. And I thought, ah, I could do that. So I went and interviewed. You know what was great about that interview? I already had this job. I thought, I could do something on the side, and I didn't care if I got it or not. And so you go into that interview, you, you know, there's a freedom there. But there's a little bit of a different feeling if you go into a job interview and you don't have a job, or the money's running out, and you're like, what am I going to do? The anxious feelings, the nervousness, I mean, that can be overwhelming. In fact, it's not uncommon, maybe even when you feel good about it, you know, you get those goofy interview questions. And you walk out and maybe you go, how did I answer that? Did I really just say that? Anybody have that moment? Okay, we're, we're all human, right? I was looking this week and I thought, what are some great job interview responses that have been given? So I stumbled across some that I thought, wow, oh, these would be worth sharing. Like the guy who was asked, why do you want to work in this role in the company? And he actually said, I looked on Google and it seems like there are worse companies out there than you. Now, these are true stories from HR people, honestly. Uh, one person was being interviewed, and the interviewer noticed that the candidate listed a school and a degree from a specific school, and uh, what they studied, in the, and they said, oh, well, tell me about your degree, and they went, oh, that's still on there? I don't have a degree. My last job required one to get in the door, so I made that up. <laughs> now, we won't ask for a show of hands. Has anybody here ever made up anything on a resume? That's right, exactly. <laughs> Um, another one was said, uh, well, where do you see our work fitting into your current schedule? And the person replied, said, don't worry about it. I'm not that busy at my current job. I'll just do it on their clock. Okay. Um, one one uh, person was asked if, uh, let's say, uh, what name, get, tell me something I wouldn't know about you based on your resume. You ever been asked that question? Uh, this person, this woman responded, well, my ex-boyfriend placed a restraining order against me after I slashed his tires because that jerk cheated on me. <laughs> Maybe a little too much sharing in that interview. Um, when uh, This is honestly my favorite. Uh, when asked what their biggest weakness was, anybody love that question? You know, I love too much. I work too hard. Those are my weaknesses. Uh, but uh, one candidate was, what's your biggest weakness? And he said, uh, well... I'm just too sexy for most people to handle. It causes problems. <laughs> to be fair, some of us just have that cross to bear. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
you know, when you know, you know. So <laughs> I love those answers. I think that that is just amazing. But we've all been there, right? We've been on that job interview and you know that the answer becomes so important because the right answers can help land you that job. It can help get you that position that you want, but the wrong answer can get your resume just tossed right in to the trash. But what is it, the answers that we're looking for when it comes to our faith? Have you ever thought about that? When we begin to ask some of those similar questions, those kind of pressure questions in, in regard to our faith, how do we know the right answers that we give. If somebody were to ask us, well, talk, tell me, why do you follow Jesus? What do you say? And then there's the additional pressure of what happens if I get it wrong. You know, oh my goodness, if I don't answer this correctly, the whole pressure's on you because their eternal destiny rests on you. It doesn't, just so you know, but we'll talk about that later. Well, that's what we're going to kind of jump into here over the next few weeks. There's an entire study, a field of study, when you go to Bible college or to seminary that you jump into where it's all about answers. It's all about answering the right questions. And this field of study is designed to equip you to know the right answers to questions people might ask you about your faith. And it's the word called apologetics. Now that's a really weird word, right? It comes from the Greek word in the passage we're going to be in today, apologia, and, but it has nothing to do with apologizing. In fact, the technical definition of apologetics is the religious discipline of defending religious doctrines through systemic argumentation or systematic argumentation and discourse. So when you study apologetics, by the way, anybody in here study apologetics before? I see a few, I see those hands, yes. And uh, so it's, it's a, a systematic study. Basically, you might spend some time in a logic class where you learn how to make logical arguments. You might spend a class talking about the fallacies of arguments and how to dismantle different arguments and things and how to deal with people who might try to refute your claims. You may take a deep dive into topics like proving the existence of God. Isn't that a fun one? How do you prove the existence of God? I mean, you can go research today. Kalam's cosmological argument for the existence of God. Great argument. Wonderful logical thing to study. But I must tell you, none of them will get you 100% there, as, much, as great as the logic may be. You'll wanna, they'll take you through a study of figuring out, can you prove the historical reliability of the New Testament. How do we know that we can trust the New Testament? How do we know that the resurrection actually happened? There's arguments for that. And most of the time, what you're doing is you're learning these questions and these answers so that when you meet someone who raises one of these questions, you're ready to give them an answer. You're ready to answer whatever questions they might have. There's only one problem with this line of study. In a post-COVID 21st century world, I'm not entirely sure we're still answering questions that people are asking. I think we, now not to say that that study of apologetics is wrong. I was on Twitter last night and one guy was saying, hey, I was in an Uber and I got to talking about the reasons for the existence of God and Jesus and the resurrection and a guy came to faith and started following Jesus right there in Uber. It's still good. But I think those are the exceptions rather than the rules nowadays. Because I think what we have to understand is, are we really answering questions people are asking? I don't know if we are or not. 
I don't know, I don't know about you, but I seldom encounter people that say, I don't believe in the existence of God, and I need to say, oh, well, let me pull out Kalam's argument for the existence of God. It's cosmological in nature. How does that sound? I've not had to use that too much. Great information to have. And what typically sometimes can happen is, if we're not careful, is we can kind of feel like we're making a sales pitch or a presentation rather than genuinely listening to the person and their needs and where they are and responding to that. It's almost like I need to get you to spot X so that I convince you of X. I don't care about A through X. And most people aren't interested in just jumping there. They want to know you care. Last year, I ran across an article by an author. His name is Daniel Montanez, and he really challenged my thinking in this area. He wrote this. He says, to engage the task of apologetics in our postmodern age, it requires the church to first understand how its influence and impact has shaped its societal context, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The church does not exist within a vacuum. Therefore, it should develop a proper self-awareness and sober self-understanding of how it has imprinted itself upon its surrounding cultural landscape. Well, that sounds a little challenging, doesn't it? He continues this. He says, By becoming more self-aware, the Christian apologist recovers the potential to regain the trust of a generation that has been hurt or abused by the church, along with those who view the church with deep suspicion. The future of Christian apologetics must look beyond answering the questions of modernity, such as the existence of God, the historicity of Jesus, the veracity of Scripture. These questions are the product of the Enlightenment era where the primary concerns were raised against the Christian faith were related to rationalism and scientific empiricism. While these type of questions retain a proper place in the practice of contemporary apologetics, it is important to recognize that post-modernity asks new questions. So here's the question. What do you think people are asking today? What are the questions that you think people are asking today? Think about that for just a moment. The people you work with, the people you live next door to, what are they asking? What are the issues that come to the top for them? Is it proving the resurrection of Jesus? Or is it something else? Why did God let this happen to me? How can there be so much hate in the world? And I would add to that, David, and why does it seem to be done in the name of Jesus? What does it have to do with my life today, not just when I die? <laughs> Isn't that a good one? What does it have to do with my life right now in this moment? And how is Christianity more than just a, a, a fire insurance faith that says I don't go to hell when I die? Does Jesus really matter today? What else? Mm. Will you accept me if I'm not just like you? Are you genuine? Are you authentic? Mm. My life is good, so why do I need God? These are great questions. And I hope over the coming weeks we're going to be addressing these. So that's what we're kicking off today. It's this new series. We're calling it Asking for a Friend, New Questions for a New Generation, where each week we're going to tackle, honestly, 
what's going to be some pretty difficult and often uncomfortable questions that many people in our struggle, uh, people in our culture struggle with today, within coming to see and know Jesus. We're going to address some things like this, heresy, and the difference between heresy and just theological differences. Where does that line get drawn? What about how do Christians account for the colonization of the Western world, genocide, slavery? Do we appreciate diversity? How do we move beyond an Anglo-centric religion? What about all the sex scandals and abuses of power within the church, (laughs) responding to social justice and the marginalized communities? Anybody excited now? I am. This is going to be fun. It's going to make me nervous, but that's all right. You see, I think these are the questions, and the things you've mentioned, I think, will be a part of that. These are the questions being asked by the postmodern skeptics of our time, both Christians and non-Christians. And see, and I think what we have to begin with today is really there's one of two ways we can approach this. We can look at it as a threat, a threat to be squashed, a, sque- a, a threat to be beaten down and pushed out. And I think we see some of that, and, and we, that's where we see coercive tactics come into play. That's where we see violence and this, uh, this attempt for power and control because, by God, I can't let that opinion be voiced. I've got to squash it because it's going to challenge my faith. You see, we can respond like that, and I think we see some of that response taking place in our world, but I don't think that's the response we're supposed to have. I think that's the entirely wrong response we're supposed to have because I think the other way we can respond is it can be seen as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to speak, speak into the culture, to speak into the injustices of the world. It's kind of like we need less coercion and more compassion, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But on the flip side, we need less relativism and more relationship with Jesus. I was reading even this morning, Somebody put um, uh, on one of the books I read, it said, the church's primary calling isn't to fix the world. Uh-oh, think about that. The, the, world, the church's primary calling isn't to fix the world, but to be the church. That's critical. And I hope as we go through this series, maybe we'll understand how to respond to some of these questions, but more importantly, how to follow Jesus better and how for us as a community just to be the church. So... Before we jump into the big questions, though, this week, I think it's important for us to begin with just this idea of, so what do we do? How do we answer these questions? Because when we look outside this room, when we begin to look at the broader context of Christianity, especially evangelicalism in in America, I think we see everything from the coercive to the passive and everything in between. So what are we supposed to do? You see, when we look at the New Testament, there's some important things, I think, that we can bring forward into our context to understand how Jesus operated in his world, how Paul and Peter operated in their world, how the letters even in the New Testament that we have that were written by Peter and Paul and John and the others, we see what they did in a way to answer the questions of their community and how do we do the same thing. You see, what, if you begin to look at Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and all these guys and the record we have in the New Testament, you begin to see that they weren't the same. Not everybody did everything Jesus did and didn't do it the way Jesus did it. And Paul had his own method and Peter had his own method and John had his own method. 
Even how Paul spoke and interacted with various Gentile groups when he went from city to city, it was different. Almost everything they did was based on the context of where they were, their culture, the practices. It's interesting because Paul even makes a statement about this in his letter to the church at Corinth. He, he talks about how to approach others to living how we live and how we tell others about Jesus. Paul says this. He said, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. See what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying, I do what needs to be done in the culture I'm in in order to help them see Jesus. Willing to sacrifice himself, give up his own freedoms, to give up everything. I become like them because I want them to be able to see, know, experience, and come to follow Jesus. I mean, we've, you've probably heard it said in a church context before, the message doesn't change and it doesn't. The good news of Jesus is still the good news of Jesus. But how we communicate that has to be changing. And as much as we may look and open the book of Acts, and we read Acts 2 and the start of the church, and we look at the power and the dynamic, and we think, oh my goodness, I want to be a first century church. Can I let you in on a little secret? We can't be a first century church. We're not in the first century. We'll never be that way. And it's foolish for us to spend effort to try to do it. But it's not foolish for us to spend the effort to figure out, then how do we be a church in the 21st century, in the year 2023, in the West Des Moines, Iowa suburb, Des Moines metro? How do we be and function as a church here? You see, what I want us to understand is the best answers to the wrong questions are wasted and foolish. The best answers to the wrong questions are wasted and foolish. We can have the best defense of everything. But if it's not to a question that's being asked, we're just speaking into the yeah. wind. Yeah. That's it. That's why being willing to answer the questions our generation is asking is so important. And in the past, where the goal of this apologetics was to win arguments was to close that salvation sale, to make faith more logical, and to give people, honestly, a false sense of certainty, our goal today has to be mutuality, respect, reciprocity, sharing Jesus with authenticity, friendship, and a willingness to walk the journey with someone, regardless of where they may be on the journey. Are we willing to do that? In, his, in Peter's letter to the Christians living in Asia, Asia Minor, they were suffering persecution. He's writing a letter to encourage them. And he talks to them about how to interact with their culture, how to interact with a culture for them that was persecuting them. Now, if you know me, you know I would never say, oh, and we Christians today are persecuted. We're not. Go look at Iran. Go look at China. There you'll see actual persecution. We're not. But Peter is writing to them to let them know how they can respond in a culture that is seemingly against them. In 1 Peter chapter 3 in our New Testaments, listen to what we have written here. It says, finally, all of you, 
Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he quotes a psalm here. It says, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then he continues on his own. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. That's our word, answer, apologia. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. What's Peter saying here? It's a lot, right? <laughs> but he begins by saying, look, be prepared. Be prepared. How do we prepare? What are some things that we can actually do to prepare? You know, this isn't like cramming for a test, but what it does mean is are we willing to grow in faith? Our goal isn't to, to come to Jesus and say, okay, I'm now a Christian and turn around and forget it. Jesus changes us. And the more we get to know him, the more we attach ourselves to him, to, to his people, the more we look like him. So how do we get prepared? We learn Jesus. That's critical in this process. We learn Jesus. What do we do? We read the gospels. We pray. We connect ourselves with others that are doing the same thing, that encourage and challenge us. And again, this isn't, you know, read the Bible this many minutes a day. Great if you want to, but it's just what are we doing in the scope of our lives to just really come to get to know Jesus better? Because we, we're not, it's not going to happen on its own unless we get prepared. Connect ourselves with the Bible and with others. And one caveat about this, it doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. Does anybody in the room have all the answers? No, not even me. I'm far from it. How many of you would say the older I get, the less answers I know? Amen, right? You know what? Then it's okay for us when we're asked a question. Somebody says, hey, tell me about this. And you're like, oh, I don't have a clue. You know what your preparation is? Your preparation is to say, I don't know. Repeat that with me. I don't know. Thank you. And then you know what you say next? but let's find out together. Let's find out together. Lean in, engage, and walk with them on the journey as you both search for the answer. We also prepare in another way, and this one I think is equally critical. Know our audience. Know our audience. How many times have we made assumptions about people or people groups or different things only to be like, oh, wow, that's completely different than what I thought. We won't, don't make assumptions. We listen. We listen to them. And then we have some emotional intelligence. We have some relational intelligence. In Acts chapter 17, we read a story. The apostle Paul, he's traveling around and he gets to Athens and he's in the, the city of Athens. And man, he walks through and he's troubled because as he's walking through, he sees all these idols set up, all these statues to all these gods. And he notices here at the end, there's one statue and it says to the unknown God. And one day he's addressing a crowd and listen to what he says. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You notice what he did right there? He didn't come in and say, you bunch of pagan heathens, you're worshiping the wrong gods. What's he say? He goes, 
hey, we have something in common. You're very religious. I'm religious. This is great. He says, I see that you are very religious. I've walked around. I've looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. Now, I think we would take ignorant to be a little harsher maybe than it was. But he says, so you just don't know the very thing you worship. You see that God over there? Let me tell you about that one because that's the one I want to talk to you about. What did Peter do? Or what did Paul do? He goes on and he talks about, he tells them about God. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them, he basically says, you guys, you know what? You need to repent because there is a God that you need to follow. And he uses this all in context of their own culture. He looks and he jumps in and he says, let me bring something that you know. Even as he talks to them, you know what he does? He knows their poets. He knows their poetry. And he uses one of their poems from their culture in to talk about. In him, we move and have our being. Him, him move and breathe and have our being. That's from, that's from Greek culture. Paul didn't create that, but he used it in order to bridge that gap. He knew his audience. Our goal with answering questions is not to get notches on our belt for conversions. Well, there's another one. People are not projects. And you know what? They can smell it a mile away if that's your intent. People are smarter than we give credit for. And if you come in just wanting to make a sales pitch, they will smell your selfish concern a mile away. But then back to our passage that Peter wrote. Did you notice what else he said other than be prepared? Did you see all the descriptors he said on how to do this? Because he talks about, he says, be sympathetic, be compassionate, be loving. And I tell you, over the past few years, it's become increasingly difficult to define what a follower of Jesus really looks like. Because these certainly aren't the words that many people in our culture would use to describe us, especially the loudest voices who claim to be Christian. They aren't compassionate. They're not sympathetic. They're not loving. And yet, that is what we are called to. When you look at the culture around us, often we would say better words to describe, quote, Christians would be arrogant, bullies, harsh, cruel, disrespectful. Adjectives that might be used to describe us would shed light on who we truly follow and resemble. Peter even says that when we are compassionate and gentle, that those who might want to slander us would have a hard time proving it. And that is so important. They'd have a hard time proving it. Peter doesn't just say be sympathetic and compassionate. He says be humble and give your answer with gentleness and respect. I wonder sometimes if we respond with disrespect and aggression, it's because of our own insecurity. It's our own fear rising up because somebody's challenging us and we're not sure, we're not certain. And because we don't know that we don't have to be certain, we get aggressive and we think, I'm going to take you down because of it. And we start shouting louder, thinking that's going to help make our case. It doesn't. When we are harsh and cruel, it, does reveal, it doesn't reveal the hope that's within us. It reveals our fear, fear of losing control and power and actually showing how little we think the Holy Spirit can really do in somebody's life. Let me say that again. When we get aggressive, when we get, you know, harsh, 
it shows just how little power we think the Holy Spirit really has in changing someone's life. I mean, how impotent must our God be if we have to do some of the things we're doing? And here's the thing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of following Jesus, it is offensive. Paul says that in the New Testament. It's going to be offensive. It's offensive to people. They don't want to hear it. But there's a difference between the gospel being offensive and you just being a jerk. There's a big difference. Don't confuse the two. <laughs> Let's learn to tell the difference. And one thing to keep in mind here too is Peter's writing this. He's not writing to Brent. He's not writing to Amy individually. He's writing to a church. In fact, he's writing to a group of churches because this letter is going to be sent around and read in multiple churches. And it reminds us when Peter says, be like-minded, he's talking about community. He's talking about the community of faith. If we as people who follow Jesus can't get along, how do we expect anyone to want to be a part of this? And he's not calling us to uniformity, but to unity in Jesus. What are we keeping at the center? What are we facing? What are we walking towards? That needs to be Jesus. And that's a reminder for us that when we defend our faith, when we give these answers, it's not an individual endeavor. This is communal. You are not on your own. Just some final thoughts here. First one of this, God is at work. And I hope you know that. Sometimes I think we need to be reminded of this. God is at work. You believe that? When you go to work tomorrow, God's already there. God's already at work. God's already moving in somebody's life. God's already doing things before we can even see there. And you know, the other amazing thing is God is inviting us to be a part of the work he's doing in the world. Why? I don't know. I think God's a little nuts on this one, to be personally honest. He could do it so much easier without me. I just screw things up. I just get in the way. It's like my children trying to help me with tasks at home. I just like to move them out of the way and do it on my own. I know that's how God sees me. But for some reason, God's like, but I'd much rather you be a part of it, Brent. Come on. And he's making that same invitation to you. He is at work. We don't have to manufacture a move of God. He's already at work in our world. We just need to be willing to open our eyes and our ears to see and hear where he is already at work and see that as the invitation to join him. The second thing I want to remind you of is don't forget the demonstrations of God's power. God's a big God, and he continues to do the miraculous around us. He will continue to do that in and through you as well. Go read the New Testament. Read Acts and watch. See what happened when the disciples, the apostles were going out and how God verified the message through amazing things that he was doing. Don't forget that. But remember this too. How we live as Christians is important. And how you live, in my opinion, is more important than what you say. We can say all the right words, but if it doesn't match how you live, we're missing it. You see, as Christians, we are called to live differently. That's what Peter's talking about. We should be eager to do good, to live the standard of Jesus and seizing every opportunity to be a positive witness for Jesus. The inward hope that we have in our lives causes us to live outwardly so different, differently that people will look at us and say, why? Why do you do that? Why do you live that way? 
So as we think about how to live in a way that demonstrates our faith and possibly even raises these questions, I want to end today with just a challenge. I want to challenge us. I love a New Year challenge. It's like dieting in the church, but without giving up food. I love it. What's our new challenge this year? So in the past, you know, we've done things. We've prayed together. We've read Bible together. One year we read the New Testament from January to Easter, all that fun stuff. And I'll tell you, if you've made a commitment to pray more, read the Bible more, great. Keep going. Don't stop. But as a church, here's what I want us to do. I'm going to challenge us to bless together in 2023. What do I mean? Well, our passage today talked about blessing even those who might wish us harm. So what about those who live next door? What about those we work with, friends and acquaintances? What if we spent some time blessing them too? So that's what I want us to look at. So over the next seven weeks as a church, just a seven-week challenge right here, I want us to see how much blessing we can pass out in the world around us, in our community. Um, What do I mean by bless? The Greek word is eulageo which means to publicly speak well of someone, to invoke God's favor on someone, to build them up, to fill them with encouragement for them to increase in strength and prosperity. That's what we mean. Why would we do this? Because we want to live in such a way that points people to Jesus, that reveals the impact of Jesus that he's made in our lives so they can experience that as well. In fact, I read an interesting story recently guy by the name of uh, Michael Frost uh, wrote, and he quotes another book, sorry, he's, he quotes a guy named Dave Ferguson. And this guy was reading a doctoral dissertation, and it was titled, Blessers versus Converters. And the researcher looked at two teams of short-term missionaries, and they visited Thailand with distinctly different missional strategies. One team was referred to as the Blessers, and they went in with the intention of simply blessing people. Um, they saw their mission is to bless whoever came their way in whatever practical ways they could. The converters, on the other hand, went to the sole intention of converting people and evangelizing everyone they encountered. Here's what the research found, that the blessers had far greater social impact than the converters. That's not really surprising, is it? You'd expect that because when your goal is contributing to society, the impact will be high. What was surprising, though, was that the blessers saw almost 50 times as many people come to faith in Jesus than the converters. The blessers were 50 times more successful at helping people. Now, are we blessing people to get them to convert? No, we're blessing people because we do that. We're people that have been blessed and we bless. That's what we do. If they come to Jesus, that's wonderful. We love that too. So what does this look like? What is is it? It's just about anything. Um, Well, we'll caution us here. Please stop buying people's coffee behind you at Starbucks, as I read recently. If they're in line at Starbucks, they can afford their own coffee. That doesn't count. Um, But what are we talking about? It can be an encouraging word. Amy still wants you to buy hers in line at Starbucks. Uh, It can be an encouraging word, an act of service or kindness, a gift, spending time with them. It can be babysitting someone's kids so they get a break. It can be as simple as sending them an encouraging text message, giving them a book that was meaningful to you. Really? The sky's the limit. But most importantly, it means we need to become students of those we want to bless. We become attentive to needs, fears, hopes, the yearnings of our neighbors in order to bless them appropriately. So here's the challenge this week. Will you bless one person? Can you bless just one person in the next seven days? That's it. You thought I was going to say like 10, didn't you? No, just one. Just one. 
It can be somebody in the church. It can be somebody outside the church. And over the coming weeks, we're going to increase it a little bit. But right now, we just want to start slow with one. And, uh, but what this is about is living missionally, living beyond just being here in this building. And to help us to remember, here's what we're doing. We've got some beautiful sticky notes to give you. So, Liz, do we have some people to pass these out? Oh, they're ready. Look at them. They were sitting there. I saw them. They were talking. They're like, is it now? Do we go now? These are our Ashworth Blessed 2023 sticky notes. Take one. Take two. We've got plenty. And here's what we want you to do. I want you to take this home and put this somewhere where you will see it. And every time you see this sticky note pad, I want it to remind you, have I blessed somebody this week? Then here's what we're going to do in addition to this. When you come to church next week, which I hope all of you come to church next week, when you walk in out here in the foyer by this TV on this side, there's going to be a table with a whole bunch of these on it and some ink pens. And we want to know, how did you bless somebody? We're going to create a blessing wall. Now, we don't need names. We don't need your name. We don't need the person you blessed. And we don't really need a lot of details. But you could just say, sent an encouraging text. And you're going to write that down. And you're going to walk over to that wall. And you're going to go. And over the next seven weeks, I want us to see how much can we fill that wall with the way we have blessed our neighborhood, our community, our coworkers. And let this be the answer to how the hope, the hope that we have within us that Peter was talking about. How do we show that? We're going to start just by blessing people. Can we do it? Yeah. Let's pray.